Good morning, and God bless you again this morning. I'd like to have you just stand, and we'll have prayer together before we start. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the kindnesses that you've shown us, the many that we don't even understand or expect, even the storms that you send our way, that don't feel like kindnesses, but they are in the long run. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together like this this morning. Thank you for the blessings you've already showered us with and the thoughts that you've brought to us. And I pray that you would just refresh us in this next session as well. May your will be done and your name be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We painted a bit of a difficult picture yesterday evening as we looked at the decline of culture and the effect of great events and subcultures on the culture and the darkness. And I'm going to have you open your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 8 again where we were yesterday. And we looked at the sanctuary that we have. I think that would fit in with what we've uh, heard this morning already. I want you to notice verse 19 to 22. And you get the picture of the time that Isaiah was living in. And I, I, the gospel of Isaiah, maybe I could just call it that. We say there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I think there's five of them. And Isaiah is the Old Testament gospel. Look at this in verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look into the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. That's the culture we depicted last night or yesterday evening. We, we talked about the supernatural paganism at the conclusion and how people have turned wholesale to the worship of Satan and Satanism. And you can see people wearing the clothes that represent that, even if you go shopping at Walmart. And the effect has been powerful. And you say, well, bless God, at least it hasn't come to our circles. But I remember distinctly a girl who was wearing a cape dress and a covering, begging to be allowed to sleep in her car overnight, because she said, I can't bear the quietness. And we, it wasn't all quiet at Bible school. We had a lot of singing. But she said, I can't handle it. I've got to have my music. I've got to be, if you just let me sleep in the car one more time, one night, where I can use my radio and listen to the kind of music I have to have, then I think I can survive the rest of the three weeks. That was her thought. But you know, she had additional problems. And we, we asked her one, at one point, who is inside of you? And she answered very honestly and simply, Lucifer. We prayed with her that afternoon. We quoted scripture. There was a number of us around her. A lot of scripture. You know, there came a point that afternoon when Lucifer had to go. And that evening when we gathered in chapel, we sang the song, Oh, spread the tidings round. Wherever man is found, the comforter has come. And God's able to do that with people who fall to the bottom of the culture, the supernatural paganism. My wife told me you should have told them what that means about that Hotel California, what I mentioned yesterday. You can freak out, but you can never leave. That is what the devil wants us to believe. That you can be hooked on wrong music, but there's no way out. There is no hope. That's what he would love. Without Christ, aliens, strangers from the covenant of promise, no hope without God. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.12. There is no more despairing place. You listen to the billboard messages that uh, callers that come from, to Christian aid ministries. 
People are at the end of the rope because there is no hope. It's become dark. And they have no wonder. They have no awe. And we said the theme this week for these topics on music are restoring the wonder of a Christian song. God can do it. Because Acts, even though we have Isaiah that says they are driven to the darkness because of the fall of this culture. Folks, this morning there is an Isaiah 9. And this is what it says. The people, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the gospel in Isaiah. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Why not? Of course. Why? Because, as we said yesterday, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Even nothing that bespeaks of any darkness. And we'll get closer and closer to that as we go further on this topic. And I notice that the very Redeemer that this introduces in verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the first name he gives us is, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonder. Wonderful. That's going to be his name. This is the Jesus that's coming. Now we hear amens in our services, and they're to be appreciated. But when the Germans came over here, and they heard the amens in church, it didn't quite make sense to them, because... When they agreed with something, they said, wunderbar. Now, I hope you're not so English, but what you can learn at least one German word. And it is wunderbar. Wunderbar is simply wonderful. And so if they agreed with something, they would say, wunderbar. Wonderful. And that is the first name that is given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that's exactly where we ended last uh, evening as well. When we said, and we heard it again this morning, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. My, you just heard a bunch about that this morning, didn't you? You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I didn't have time yesterday afternoon to conclude with an illustration I wanted to conclude with. So I'll take a moment to use that illustration before I go further into the topic this morning is music itself. A moral issue. Some years ago, I was speaking to James Nolte from Ephratus. Some of you know him, probably. And he said that when they and his family lived in Romania, over and over again, as they were learning the language, they found out that an easy way to learn it is by singing, by singing the songs. And they said, Especially when they sang the songs of Nikolai, Nikolai Modoviana. It was just very special. There was something so special. The music just gripped them. And in time, they came to know Nikolai Modoviana. I came across one of his songs through my brother there that or through Brother James, actually. My brother has lived over there for 20 years as well. And I see in this a sanctuary for a man who's faced the storms. Nikolai Moldoviana was cast into prison. He was in cell 13. He had a cellmate whose name some of you older ones at least heard of, you younger ones may be interested in reading the book sometime. I won't tell you his name right away. But these two men were in, this was during the communist time, and they were cast into the prison because of their faith and because they possessed Bibles and because they promoted the teachings of Christ. 
And Ro Romania was supposed to be atheistic like Russia. And you don't do that, they said. So they cast him into prison. Fortunately, these two Christians ended up in the same cell, cell number 13. The soldiers, the, the officers, the, the people guarding the prison would come in to their room and would force these two Christian men on their stomachs, on the cement floor, underneath the bunk. And they were too big to just conceal themselves under the bunk. And so for an hour, these men, these, uh, these uh, guards, would stomp on anything that was sticking out from under the bunk. Hands, feet, anything. They would stomp on them and stomp on them. And this was their matter, manner of torture on them. And finally, satisfied that they had duly persecuted these folk, they left the cell. And when they left the cell, Nikolai and his room, his partner very gingerly worked themselves out from underneath. They were hurting. They were in bad shape. His partner was Richard Vermbrand, the author of Tortured for Christ. And when he worked his way out of cell, Nikolai said to Richard, he said, while they were doing that to us, the Lord gave me a song. Now the English translation doesn't rhyme like it does in Romania, but I'm going to give you the song anyway. Titled, Not Only Speak of Thee. Not only, Lord, to speak of thee, my Jesus and thy word, but may your life now be in me, just as you live when on this earth. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, I desire your life to be in me, and all I am to be like thee. Your image, Lord, to see in me, was the chorus. Not only speak about what's faith, but faithful be to thee always, your meekness and humility and thoughts to fill my mind. Not only speak about what's hope, but always live it to the full, to give assurance when in peril and rest within my soul. Not only speak about what is love, but truly more and more to love. And your commands not only know, but live them out unto the full. Not only speak about light, but everywhere to shine, to always have a peaceful life just as you are serene. Not only speak about heaven's future home, my daily language be, but heaven and a holy celebration to be my life while I'm here. End of quote. He quoted that all by memory to Richard, and Richard said, Nikolai, let's let those men put us on our stomachs again under that bunk so that you can compose more hymns like that one. We were over there for Bible school summer a year ago. My brother called me ahead of time and he said, is there something special? You want to go? You want to go see the Carpathian Mountains? Or, you know, is there something where how great the art was written? Do you, is there something special you want to do while you're over here? We're going to have a couple days besides Bible school. I said, yes, I have one desire. I'd like to meet someone in Nikolai Modoviana's family, if it were possible. Both he and his wife had passed away. And part of the reason for saying that is because Nikolai, in that storm that he was in, the small picture that he was looking at, he would write him day after day. He would quote them to himself. And he had a pattern of trying to keep them in his memory. And he would write new hymns, never permitted to have pencil or paper. But it was in his memory. He wrote 361 hymns in prison. But when he was finally released years later, he could not remember any of them. That hurt. And he began to beg to God, Oh, God, would you give me, would you give me the memory back? I want to know those hymns you gave me while I was in prison for you. 
And one by one, they started to come back. All but one. 360 of them came back. For two months, day and night, he must have rested and ate some. But they said for two months, day and night, he, along with the help of Yosef, wrote these hymns down, wrote the music down. And it was a tremendous experience. I think it was his sister or sister-in-law who said, well, your mind must have not quite held you the whole way if you forgot one of them. But for the rest of us, we marveled at the, the 360 he remembered. And then we were eating supper at James's house in Lancaster County one evening, and when the supper was over, James came walking behind me. We were still all at the table, and he laid a hymn book in front of me. I looked at the cover, and I saw Nikolai Moldoviana. He said, here's the book with those 360 songs in it. I held it in my hand, but that's all I did. I didn't open the cover. I held it a full moment, and I handed it back to James, and I said, James, I have not known what Nikolai has known, and I am not worthy to even open this hymn book. I give it back to you. And so he took it back and put it away. Summer year ago, in Romania, Bible school was finished. Yosef is still living. We went to his house. We spent hours there. And of course, my brother had to translate into English the many stories he told of Nikolai Moldoviana. I said, would there be a hymn book still available from those 360 songs? And they said there are three remaining. One's with his daughter in another distant city. Two are local. One of them has some pages loose. I said, that, that wouldn't matter to me. I'll pay you a dear price just for the book for a man who kept watching through the storm to the other side. An hour later, his son-in-law walked in and gave me the copy that I now have, one of those remaining three. And even though I can't read it, this book for me represents light, represents willingness to suffer in order for God to bring music to his people and songs to his people. And you'll discover as the week goes on that a lot of the songs we sing have been born in suffering or during periods of revival. And we sing them too glibly. Bless God for the sister who gave out the song this morning, Marvelous, Matchless, Infinite Grace. There was just like a holy hush that was present even during the singing. God bless you for that. That's the power of song. But in today's evangelical world, they are saying that the music does not matter. It is just the words that matter. The music is amoral. It has no morality to it. And interestingly enough, it's not just young people who've said that to me, but I've had people who were at least three score come and say that same thing. Now, it's important what the words are, but it's not critical what the sound is. That doesn't matter. God made all the music. Really? We want to discover that. The question we are facing this morning is music itself, the sound itself, is it a moral issue? Now I'm going to suggest this morning that you brought with you what is the most valuable thing that you have. All of you did. No exceptions. I am wondering if you recognize what that most valuable thing is. 
you would discover its name in the book of Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to suggest to you that the most valuable thing you possess is your personal spirit. Because it is in your personal spirit where the awareness or fear of God takes place. And it is the personal spirit of people that the decline of culture has become so encrusted and so destroyed, as I want to illustrate later this morning, that they don't even have an awareness of God. I'm not talking about the 1.3 million people who've never even heard of Jesus. I'm talking of people who may have had opportunity, but they have turned their backs. And there's a reason. I think you'll understand the process. I would like to suggest three things to start with. Anything that affects our awareness of God is a moral issue. You think music can do that? Number two, anything that enhances or beclouds the spirit of a person is a moral issue. Anything that makes your spirit become larger or shrinks it down is a moral issue. Anything, thirdly, that affects or determines the eternal destiny of your spirit is a moral issue. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says. It's a wonderful prayer. It's It's a very significant, it's a necessary prayer. It says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. This morning, our brother in his portion in Hebrews 12 read these words. Now, no chastening. I'll just go right to the verse that he had, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had the fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Really? What was the most valuable thing Stephen had as he was being stoned to death. Do you remember what he said? You read it in Acts 7.59. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he offered his spirit back to God. But in Luke 23.46, you see, read something similar. These words, Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. You know who said that, don't you? That was Jesus. In both cases, they were giving back to God the most valuable thing they had. And there is no one here this morning, I believe, that doesn't have that personal spirit. It's the most valuable thing you have because it is where your awareness of God takes place. The darkness of our day and the culture of our day and the Satan that's so alive today is determined to darken your spirit. There's a lot of things that are not nearly as subtle in darkening that spirit like music is. And that's my burden. I'd like to see a whole generation of young people whose spirits are not subtly darkened by the music they're listening to. I'd like to see their their spirits instead to be enlarged, to be made powerful, to be opened up. Because we, God has a perfect standard. And we'll just take a look at it. And when 
And that's and that standard is the father of spirits. And look what this one says. We looked at this yesterday. For thus saith the high and lofty one, another from the gospel of Isaiah. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, if we're going to do a little study on the how do we know if our music accommodates God is right music, where are we going to turn? Our parents can help us. Our pastors can help us. But I think we need to turn to God's character. Because we can get hung up and say, well, that's just your opinion. And I've uh, had the experience many times of people coming and contradicting what I've said. I think you are here with an open heart and mind. And my primary goal this week is to help build in you an awareness of how important your spirit is so that you have a spirit that's just open toward God. God's character. If we would study God's character, we'd have some idea what God is like. You can, you can go back to the scripture. Let's go back there to where we were yesterday in Deuteronomy chapter. No, let's not go to. Yes, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Remember how it talks about the fear of God there in verse 12 and 13. And God very interestingly told Moses, the message I have for you, I want you to put it in a song. Look at verse 19. Deuteronomy 31, 19. Now therefore write ye this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. We know from the New Testament that the ministry of preaching is the number one ministry. Why would he tell Moses to put the message, this special message, into a song? Verse 22, Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Moses forgot to say, I can't write a song. I know you gave me this precious experience, but I can't write a song, Lord. Don't you know me? I can't even talk right. You remember that yet, Lord, don't you? Moses didn't say that. He said, if you want a song from me, you're getting a song from me. And in the last verse, it says, and Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song. Until they were ended. Bless him. Thank you Moses. What a wonderful illustration. Why did he put it in a song? Why did God say put it in a song? God knows our tendency. Songs tend to outlive the sermons in the memory. Right? Yeah. I could give you a piece of, all of you a piece of typing paper. And uh, tell you now, write down the outline and the details and as many illustrations as possible from the sermon that was preached at your church two weeks ago this past Sunday. Without looking in your notebook. <laughs> well, uh, maybe both of us be in trouble. Do you recall some of the songs you sang? I do. I think we do. Why? God just knows there's something special about songs. There's something that implants themselves. And songs have that power. And yet people insist that the, the, the sound doesn't matter. It's just the words that matter. But folks, as we'll soon see, I hope, the sound will drive those words into our spirits. They drive them down deep inside. Well, what... What must be this song that's so important? Well, let's read it. It's the next chapter. 
Deuteronomy 32. Let's take the first four verses. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. As the small rain upon the tender herb. And as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto the latest Anabaptist singing group. No, I, I did not read that. That's... Teacher, do better job than that, please. Okay, here we go again. Because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. You have four things, seven things right there in one solitary verse about what the character of God is like. Now, yesterday we said, Vance Havner said, that what we're needing today are Christian Christians. And by that we're suggesting, we're talking about people who put form and content in harmony. Christians that don't just have it in their heart, but they show it in their life. They show it in their form. And that's the character that God, we can learn from God by his character what he's like. And then if we're to be Christian Christians, then we live that character. We live the character of God. Well, what is God like? Well, no man has ever seen him. So how can we know God's character? You learn to know God's character through his expressions. And God has numerous expressions. And those are the expressions that he lives. Look at here in verse 4. It said he is a rock. That speaks of he's solid. God's solid. He doesn't change. In my King James Version here, the word rock is capitalized. So what should our rock be like? What should our music be like? It should be rock music. Uh, Beg your pardon. Do not misunderstand me. (laughs) Capital R music. It should be solid. Music that can stand the test of time. Allow the little Christian Pepsi-Cola songs will never last more than a couple weeks or a month or two. Year or two at the most. His work is perfect. Are you sure his work is perfect? Well, folks, the the lesson you had in the first session this morning was very clear that his work is perfect. I had a friend who just, uh, he blessed me to no end. He had a vision for winning the world for Christ. But he said, if I'm a missionary to a foreign country, I will only reach people in one country. I remember so well when he became so pleased with who God was leading, the girl God was leading him to. And they got married. And they moved to New York City. And he began to have Bible studies with college students from numerous countries. And his motive was, because they were studying English over here, he could communicate with them and then have these people, as they become Christians and as they follow the Lord, go back in all their different countries and take the gospel to them. It's a wonderful idea. And he did that one year, two years, three years, four years. And people, and he reached out to these college students. He had a pain that he had to live with, though, and that was he had a heart problem. That was one pain he had. Another pain he had, they didn't have any children. He and his precious wife, dear as she was, neither of them, they just, somehow there just were no children. Six, seven years passed, no children. But he kept right on through that storm, faithfully following God. And one day he fell over on the sidewalk in New York City, if I'm not mistaken, and it was the end of my friend. He died. His story was over. His legacy was now finished. I met his wife about six or seven months later in Indiana. And I saw that she was almost to give birth to a baby. But her husband never knew that before his death, God gave his wife a child. Some years ago, I was going through one of the hardest trials of my life about six years ago. And I was asked to speak in the north at a youth youth conference. And at lunchtime, I sat down in one of the pews where we were eating our lunch, and there was a young girl in her lower 20s sitting in front of me. And when I found out who she was, 
I was just struck. She was a school teacher. She was a faithful Christian. But she had never seen her father because her father had passed away before she was born. I spent the next half hour telling her wonderful stories about her dear, dedicated, loving father and the vision she ha he had because he was my friend. When I had met her mother 22 years earlier in northern Indiana, I quoted part of Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 to her. I said to her, He is the rock. His work is perfect. See, we don't know. You heard this morning. You see the little picture. You don't know. But his daughter is an honor to the father she never saw. All his ways are judgment. It's just your opinion. I was asked one time to speak on your music tastes. I don't know how to do that. Because we all have our tastes. It's more important to talk about our music appetites. That's more critical. He's a God of judgment. I'm glad for that. He's a God of truth. No lying with him. He's without iniquity. He's just. Just. That means he's fair. School teachers try to be fair too, don't they? But it's, then a student says, that's not fair. Now they... They don't say that in my presence. I tell them they can come tell me quietly, but they're not supposed to affect the atmosphere. If they feel that, they can come tell me quietly, but don't say it in front of everybody. And it's possible that sometimes we aren't fair. But you can never say that about God unless you would say it on this behalf that his kindness to us is far more than being fair with us. His grace is more than we ever deserved. So he's just and he's right. Now, if you have a God like that, and our music is to be solid, perfect, with good judgment, truthful, without iniquity, just and right, don't you think that would be pretty good music? I think so. I think if we're Christian Christians, it should be like that. Turn with me to Psalm 89. Verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Hmm. Is it right th this morning that when we're going to make a judgment on music... That we go to God's character. We're taking some time to try to establish that. Is it okay to do that? Is it right to do that? Or do you think that sound doesn't communicate? Now do you also notice that it says mercy and truth shall go before thy face. And I think when we evaluate music as well as anything else. We should have those two things very alive. I like to call these the Bible twins. Mercy and truth. Because I have seen people try to raise their families on mercy and the children went astray. And I've seen people trying to raise their families on truth without mercy and their children went astray. I think these are the identical twins. And I think it doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or a pastor or a parent, whatever we are, I think these twins should be so identical in our life and experience that the people that we're responsible to will hardly know whether it's the truth part or the mercy part that's at work. Our oldest daughter has a set of twin daughters, identical. And my wife does better than I. She can tell them apart. I still can't. If they would only wear different Opposite dresses or something, you know, but, and then I try to find, I've actually written a little note card to myself if, if they were wearing something different. To try to remember, they're so identical. And then I think of this verse. My second son has a set of twin boys. They're 13 years old. And I've tried so hard. I mean, when they were little, one sucked his right thumb, one sucked his left thumb. 
But then I forgot which one was sucking which thumb. I couldn't remember. And then a number of years later, in about middle grades, one of them got glasses. And I said, good, now I'll know from that. He only wore them a short while. And so I still don't know. They're 13. I still can't tell them apart. They're so identical. But the lesson for me has been that I'm so glad that mercy and truth is to be that identical to us. And then do you know what the very next words are? Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Blessed are the people who can identify sound. I heard John Macagena say one time, I'm not frustrated. I'm not frustrated. Now, I didn't change the words at all. Do you think this sound influenced you (laughs) or made a difference? Do you think the sound can actually contradict the words? I sounded frustrated, I believe, second time through. You see, this is what the people are trying to say, especially in CCM. There is no morality to music. And what we have to do is start looking at some things that have to do with what God is like. Let's look at the general revelation of God. And you'll find some of this in... From years ago, John Coburn's actually shared some some of these things, and I appreciate it tremendously. Actually, he talked to me three different times about it. Third time, it made sense. First time, it's supposed to make sense for you. God has given us a general revelation, and it's a powerful revelation. We can go to Psalm. We, we were just here in the Psalms. Let's go back to Psalm 19. And see if this revelation gives us a clue to the nature of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day and a day utter speech, and night and a night showeth knowledge. For there is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. What that scripture is saying is that God has given scientists an awful lot to do, but not just that. I don't care what jungle child, seven years of age, he can already be observing nature. I don't care what part of the world they live. They are surrounded by nature, and God has given that general revelation to the entire population around this entire globe to prepare them for the gospel. That's why it's so important we take it there. What what do you know about it? Well... If nothing else, if that boy in India who knows nothing but Hinduism, if he takes some time in the middle of the night, maybe just to look up at the stars. Or if he watches the movement of the sun. Now, the students in school, they know very well that the earth makes that rotation in about 24 hours. Makes that, does that twirling. They know in about 365 and a quarter days that it makes that revolution around the sun. But the thing they don't seem to realize is the movement of the sun through the Milky Way galaxy. The, the, Milky Way, the, the movement of the sun is about 150 miles per second. And so even since I started talking about this, we've gone quite a, quite a ways. I mean, if I've talked about this for a minute, we've traveled 9,000 miles. You look fairly comfortable yet, but an hour from now, when you're just real deep into your lunch, uh, or maybe just finished with it, you'll have traveled 540,000 miles through our galaxy. I had my son in school. He wanted to figure out how far have we gone in 6,000 years. His calculator didn't work, so he did it by pencil and paper. It's a good way to do. And so he figured out it was 28 trillion 402 billion, 617 million, and then he rounded off at 600,000 miles that we've gone through. And I shared that with some students, and an eighth grade uh, girl raised her hand and said, uh, Brother Miller, don't you think we're getting to the edge of the galaxy? What's going to happen? And I said, Well, my understanding is a bit of an elliptical movement, 
and we are about two-thirds of the way through the galaxy. We still have a third way to go. In 6,000 years, we're about two-thirds of the way. And so I said, really? It's not your and my problem. Because there's no possibility we'll live that long. I said, if it were a problem, I do think that God can move. And they used to say there's about 100 billion galaxies. And they've changed that figure now to 350 billion galaxies besides the Milky Way. And I said, I think if there were a problem and God wants the world to stand a while yet, he could just slip another galaxy right up against the Milky Way. We'd slip right into that one, keep right on going. I mean, this, what does that tell you? God is a God of order. God is a God of vastness. God is a God of wonder. And we are worried about all the aspects that's underneath this canvas that's still hidden to us. Look who's in control. Look who's got hold of it. There's a lot of other things we see in nature. In Ecclesiastes 7.13 it says, Consider the work of God who can make straight what God has made crooked. What did God make crooked? A pole bean. Yeah, it grows around a stake a certain direction in our hemisphere. In fact, just close to Chicago, not so far from here, four or five hours from here, they planted, a, a lady planted a field of, I forget how many acres she put out, 10 acres or so of pole beans. And then she discovered that she had bought a large variety but had put in short poles. So she had migrant workers, I assume, she had workers anyway, go out and pull the short poles out, put the long poles out because she wanted to get advantage of the whole thing. And in a short time, she saw that her beans were dying. Many of them were dying. She got the agronomist out from Chicago, one of the universities, and they studied the soil. They said, the soil's okay. We don't know what's wrong. You know what was wrong? The migrant workers, or whoever did it, had wrapped the plants around the poles the wrong way, opposite of the way they grow in our hemisphere. And I guess if beans can have their way, they die. (laughs) You know, they... No wonder the scripture says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he's made crooked. There's, there's a lot of other things. And, and I, don't know of a, I don't know of a single culture anywhere in the world that you won't find an egg of some sort. I mean, any, any jungle, there may not be a domesticated chicken egg, but you'll find egg anywhere in this whole universe. Birds of all different kinds. Is there order in this egg? How about the design of this egg? Well, the design is such that it's strong. I can put pressure on the ends of this and push hard. End to end, it won't break. I can take the second hand and push. There may be a few of you who wish it would. But I can push hard, and it's not going to break. It's not breaking. Why not? Because of who designed it. Don't not, I'm not talking about the chicken either. It's because of who designed this egg. Now, when this egg were it to hatch, this one won't. But if it were to hatch, which end would the chick hatch out of? This end or this end? The top end. This is where it'll hatch. Why? Well, they put it in a centrifugal machine one time, and they, they turned this thing 10,000 times, but the poor dizzy chick still hatched out of the top. <laughs> Why? Because there's a little two-day supply of air up here at the top. And that chick needs it. Never help the chick out. It won't work. That chick needs that air in order to get out. And yet, when that hand first laid this egg, how was it laid? The pointed end came down. That's what they say. That's the pointed end that hits the bottom. Why? The shell up here is only one half as thick as down here. So we have learned already that God is a God of order. He's a God of design. He's a God of efficiency, too. He doesn't want that chick to work twice as hard. And he doesn't want you to work twice as hard as you should and forget your Lord. And, and uh, not have time to meditate. He's a God of efficiency, but he's also a God who loves life. Because eggs contain life. And so if this egg falls, it falls where it's tougher. So that it will have, so that it's to save the life. It's exactly what you see, not only in this nature, but you see it in, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But that's just a clue. Those are four clues of what God is like. What should be our music like? Should our music have order? Should our music have design? 
Should our music have... Well, actually, this thing, if it were to hatch, it has beauty, too. Ask the grandchildren. I mean, you take that thing out of the little pen, and, and, and they almost squeeze it to death. It feels so good and looks so pretty. And we usually keep them in the house because there's a sixth thing about these little chicks when they do hatch. And that's the music they make. The chirping is so, it's so much fun to hear that chirping. It's music. Who gave them the chirp? God did. It's all part of God's creation. In our country alone, and this is already some years ago, but in our country alone, every second there were 2,000 of these testimonials that God laid. 2,000 of them. That people would just stop and think about it. Do you think God wants us to recognize that he's around? <coughs> House flies. Nobody appreciates them except your little brothers, not sisters, but little, little brothers. Why do they appreciate them? Because they can walk upside down on the kitchen ceiling and your little brothers can't. Well, you could put six legs on your little brother and they still couldn't walk upside down on the ceiling. Why can the flies? Why is mama so disturbed when I find them so intriguing? There's a reason why. Every one of those six legs has 150 pores that emits a little bit of glue. Which means to mama that when that fly takes one complete step, it has just put 900 spots on the ceiling. And flies are known to make more than one step on the ceiling. And little brother doesn't have that glue coming out of the bottom of his feet. So he can't do it. You go to the large end of the creation, you go to whales. And it's amazing that whales are mammals. They nurse their young. And they give 132 gallons of milk each day. I had a classroom full of mostly dairy farm children at one point some years ago and I said why and they were milking about 50 60 cows at that time most of them are milking 100 or more now but at that time they were milking 50 or 60 cows and I said why in the world do you milk those 50 60 cows when you would have three whales you'd have just as much milk <laughs> and one eighth grade girl raised her hand and she said brother Miller where would we keep them well, an eighth grader can always spoil your point. But anyway, <laughs> no, she, was, she was right. And there's another reason why you wouldn't want to do that. Because a baby blue whale will gain 200 pounds a day. <laughs> and so it is not good for humans to consume whale milk. <laughs> Definitely not. Mama weighs 400 and 40,000 pounds. 220 tons. Take a couple of big Michigan log trucks to equal a whale. There's a lot of other illustrations. Our human body. I hope this point is made. There's a specific revelation. And that specific revelation is simply this book. When you read this book, do you see in it a God of chaos or a God of order? When you read this book, do you see a God of design? When you see this book, do you see a God of beauty? Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, I know Jesus' visage was marred. But when you testify to the work of God, we must remember Jesus' first name. Wunderbar. Wonderful. Marvelous. He was. The specific revelation. You study this book. Do you read in it efficiency? And I have opened the third one there for you. The personal revelation of God. What do we mean by the personal revelation of God? 
What we mean by that is as though this isn't enough. And it wasn't enough according to Hebrews. God sent his son. And his son said, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. You know what God is like if you watch me. Was Jesus a God of order? Did he have order in his life? Did he have design in his life? Did he have efficiency? You said no. No, he got there late. He was too late. He didn't get there in time for, for Mary and, and Martha and because Lazarus was dead. I mean, he's four days late. Now, wait a minute. Jesus' design was more than a dime's picture. Jesus' design was bigger. Because you will read in the scripture, following the resurrection of Lazarus, many believed on the Lord. (laughs) He knew what he was doing. And yet it wasn't that he was calloused. Because you have those two precious words that every school student, young child, and even preschool student, they know a whole verse in the Bible when they know Jesus wept. But those two words are pregnant with meaning. He wept. He felt. And I've had a hard time understanding why the Pharisees were so, so unhappy with Jesus and so determined that they are going to, they've got to kill Lazarus. Let's get rid of Lazarus again. Well, didn't they see what Jesus had just done before? They wanted to watch a second resurrection? No, they weren't interested in that. Did Jesus love life? Oh, he was a busy man. And I don't, we usually picture mothers, but I think there were some daddies with those little children too that came and said, I wish my little son could sit on Jesus' lap. Disciples looked at him. uh, You mean well, but he's busy. He's doing important things. And Jesus knew so well what was going on. And here's just one more evidence of how Jesus loves life. He said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. If some of you aren't school teachers yet, I hope you'll become one. I've gotten calls from seven different schools, maybe most of you homeschool. But I wonder if God isn't going to call you in the foreign field or stateside to be inside a classroom and suffer the little children to come into me and forbid them not. I think one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that God has given the general revelation to the entire world and he has waited on his people to make the next two revelations known to that world. To make this Bible available to that world and to have people explain who Jesus is. Well, How about humans? Do you think our music should match God's character and have order in it and beauty and design and efficiency? Or would you like the same chorus to be repeated 23 to 27 times? Do you think our music should love life? 
Do you think our music should so should show that we truly care for the spirits of people? Should it? Do you think it's important what the belief and value system is that's inside our heart and that that belief and value system will accommodate the character of God? Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. Those are God's words to us. And I guess you're going to have to wait four and a half hours for the rest of this overhead. The Lord bless you.